Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Paul, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Beck. And firstly, I do just want to endorse that gathering. Gathering. Um, I just think it's it's very very important that we help men build relationships. Okay, all over the place now, you know, social survey statistics tell us that men are not good at building relationship, and it's not good for us. Uh, suicide amongst men is the biggest killer of men under 50. So we need to help men build relationships, talk to one another honestly. So I'm going, and I'm going to be on people's case. I just think it would be great if we had a great group going. All of that activity and all the rest of it, brilliant. My main reason for going is those times when we sit over aforementioned meat and just talk actually, in the mess tent. That's the best time of the whole weekend for me. So I really want to encourage you. So you may have seen that and thought, oh, I'm not into all that laddish, you know, loud, boisterous, all the rest of it. You may, may be into that. But I just want to encourage you guys to think about that. And ladies, if you've got a guy sat next to you, why don't you just prompt them and say at some point, why don't you go to that, okay? So why don't you turn around and say to a guy next to you or near you, why don't you think about going to the gathering? Why don't you just turn around and say that to somebody, Okay. Okay. Brilliant. Well, just shifting gears somewhat. Uh, as you'll notice in Insight there is, uh, is a, a piece on Burkina Faso and Mark Gibson did indeed get up a couple of weeks back and speak to this. And uh, I'm just going to pick up on that in a minute, but I'm just, I just feel I'd like to pray myself actually. So Father, we ask as we come to your word now, Lord, it would shape us. You'd draw us in. Lord, I pray for revelation by your Holy Spirit. Without this, the next 30 minutes are pointless. And so we ask for your Spirit to anoint your word that speaker and hearers may do well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I remember thinking when, when Mark got up and spoke a couple of weeks back about these, and if you look in insight, if you haven't read it, basically we have a missionary here at Beck, and um, they have connection out there in West Africa, in Burkina Faso. They were missionaries out there. They're now back here. Mark goes from time to time to a Bible school there. And what's happened is uh, jihadis in the north of Burkina have been attacking the church, and particularly perhaps the Fulani church, the Fulani people that Mark and Cheryl then reach are in no man's land um, because uh, they are distrusted by the rest of the population because a lot of uh, Islamists are Fulanis. And, uh, and then the Christians amongst the Fulanis are distrusted by the Fulanis because they've become Christians. The Fulani are a Muslim people. So they're in no man's land, these Christians really. And what's happened is the church has been attacked and uh, Mark's put an insert in there about these brothers. Uh, they are our brothers. Uh, a pastor, two pastors, one of whom was killed by jihadis in this village, and another who was then taken away with his family, refused to renounce Christ, and were killed. And Mark stood up and shared that a while back, and we prayed, and inevitably, really, Mark, was very moved as he was praying. 
But part of me heard that and part of me thought, here we are in building. There was just, there was something about it that I think makes us uncomfortable. Here we are in sunny Bilton. I mean, we're a nice church, aren't we? You know, we have children and youth and some lovely old folks among us like Phil. And yet there's this jarring news of people being killed for their faith. I don't think that's a pessimistic outlook. Actually, there's something to be said that persecution of the church is is the norm for the Christian church, if you read church history. And I think our connection with Burkina very much ties in with where we are going to be this morning. Uh, Just to say then, where we are is we're continuing actually a series in Mark. Now the reason we're continuing this is because we have been looking at the book of Mark in on Sunday evenings. So Sunday evenings we've got as far as chapter 8. So if you have a Bible and you follow in your Bible, we're in chapter 8. And uh, we've got as far as uh, chapter 8. We've, we've, I'll, I'll do a catch up in a minute. But we're in this gospel. I think I've finally worked out what that slide shows. It shows I think somebody whose faith is strong enough to move mountains, okay? That is a mountain moving. I've, I've finally worked out, I've been, we've been using this for seven or eight weeks, and I've finally worked out what that shows. And I want to speak this morning about cruciform disciples. Don't know whether you know what that word means. We'll come back to it. Cruciform disciples. So uh, just to quickly then catch up on seven chapters, where are we up to now that we are in chapter eight? Well, essentially what we've been looking at is this, that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. Tom Wright, uh, you may know him, a theologian, Uh, he writes as Tom Wright when he writes books for the likes of us, that people can understand. And then when he writes academic books, he writes as N.T. Wright. He's an academic as well. So if you ever come across his books, uh, the easy ones are Tom Wright, and they're still pretty involved. And he wrote a book called How God Became King. And he quotes the creed that we've just sung. We've just sung the creed, and, and he quotes the Apostles' Creed, which begins like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in God the Father, it starts off. I must have bit there, sorry. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, I don't know whether you look at that, and those last two lines there, you may reflect, that's a big gap there. So, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's like a big leap between being born and suffered. And Wright talks about the missing middle. Well, what happened between Jesus being born and suffering under Pilate? It's a valid question, isn't it? That, that, that creed there leaves a lot out. Well, and Wright argues, and I think this is absolutely right, that what was happening there was Christ was demonstrating and establishing the kingdom. In the person of Jesus Christ, heaven came to earth. We sing a song, 
You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Now that can make God sound a little bit twee, like he's alone there. Oh, bless him. He didn't want heaven without us. So he brought heaven down. Theologically, it's true. Jesus brought heaven to earth. It was what the temple was about. The temple was about the meeting place of heaven and earth, the holy of holies, the place where God dwelled. It's where we're heading. Heaven is going to meet earth, brothers and sisters. Phil is already there. Heaven is going to meet earth one day. And in the person of Jesus, heaven met earth. And the culture of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, was established in the person of Jesus. That was what he was about. And this is what we see happening in chapters 1 to 7 of Mark. And it begins like this. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God, heaven has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And actually, he was that gospel. He was the kingdom personified. So you don't have the kingdom without Jesus. And so that's how it started. The kingdom was announced and it has come near because Jesus was, had come. And it was characterised in the following way. And we see this again through the early chapters of Mark. Oppressive powers were shattered. Men and women were set free from demonic oppression. And let's not kid ourselves, there are still men and women in the world today under the oppression of the demonic. It's just in our materialistic Western society, we don't see it. But let me tell you, they are. We saw the power and the miraculous come to the fore in the person of Jesus. The blind saw, the lame walked, the deaf heard, and the dead were raised in the person of Jesus. We saw his uh, sovereignty over creation. This man stilled storms, and the disciples were terrified. He forgave sinners, he had tremendous compassion. And there were new perspectives on God, on ourselves and the human condition, and on others. And we were called to align, human beings were called to align with these new perspectives. It's what that line, repent and believe, is about. Repent, that change of mind. We are called, these these early followers were called to align with Christ, to align with God's perspective on things. And so a kingdom of transformation and breakthrough had arrived. And men and women were invited into this kingdom. They were invited to submit to the rule and reign of God. They were invited to live out the culture of heaven on earth. Well, how awesome is that? How awesome is that? I mean, who could refuse that? Who could refuse a kingdom of power and life and joy and freedom, and healing, and wholeness. Who could refuse that? Well, lots of people did. Lots of people did. You'd have thought the response to that could only be good, but the responses were actually as follows. The crowds used Jesus. The crowds saw him as a meal ticket. 
You know, he's, he's providing food. He's miraculously multiplying fish and loaves and no one goes hungry when Jesus is around. And healing happens. And in times of crisis, you know, when, when children are sick, you go to Jesus and your daughter's healed. Well, this is what it said of the crowd. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say it was a miraculous healing. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people wanted to take hold of Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you in a box. We love you. We'll get you out. You're like a genie. You know, if we rub the lamp, then you grant us three wishes. So we, Jesus, we want to make you king, this following you've got. Look at your miraculous powers. We want you to be king and set us free from the Roman oppression. And Jesus saw that and withdrew. We can be like this, can't we? Want to use Jesus for our own ends. That can be, it can be good motives. Let's just ask ourselves, why do we come on a Sunday? Is it the social circle? Is it friendships? Is it that alone? You know, is it a place, a safe place, a nice place for our children to be looked after because we want them hanging around with Christian kids because Christian kids are nice? Well, if that's all it is, that's kind of using Jesus. But I think particularly, what about those times of crises? When we really, I mean, we, our, safe, our faith really gets serious when we push into, when we uh, have face times of crises, illness perhaps. Now, God is so full of compassion and love, he receives us in those times. But sadly, in my time here at Beck and elsewhere, I'm sure you've seen the same, I can think of people that we see them a lot. You know, maybe there's an illness and we see them a lot and they press into Jesus and, and, and I dare say Jesus maybe heals them through doctors or miraculously and then you think, what happened to them? Well, that's not following the way God wants us to follow, brothers and sisters. He's compassionate and loving and he'll receive us like that. But we're not to use him in that way. Otherwise, we become like spoiled children who are just in it for what we can get out of it. Secondly, the Pharisees opposed him. Again, amazing. There's a healing in Mark 3. And at the end of it, it says this. Jesus challenges them. I think it was a healing on the Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees aren't happy about that at all. Because they've got rules about Sundays. Sabbaths. Yeah, I wasn't literally meaning Sundays. And it says this, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He's just healed a man. How can you react in this way? How can you be so offended? So the Pharisees oppose him. And then the disciples just do not get him at all. This is, this is, this is quite a sobering word for us. We may not have God sussed. You may not have the Lord's will for you, for your family, for this church, sus. I may not have the Lord's will for this church, sus. Have you noticed how God does things his way? You see, these disciples have seen his ministry. They, they'd seen the nature of the kingdom. They'd seen the sort of discipleship God had required, and yet they were clueless. In Mark 8 there, there's, there's this great 
passage. Jesus has just fed the 4,000. And then the disciples go off in a boat and it says they didn't take any bread with them. And then it says, Jesus said to them, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of the Herod. That of Herod, right? They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we haven't got any bread. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and, the Her- and of Herod. And the disciples say, he's talking about, we haven't got any bread. It's like, you numpties. What, what, how can you connect? What do you think the Pharisees and Herod are? Bakers or something? What, he's talking about literal yeast here? And so the disciples just do not get him. That kind of encourages me in our faltering discipleship where we're trying to work out, Lord, what are you doing in my life? It encourages me. Because you won't be able to suss things completely. We're dependent on revelation from him. So the kingdom has come. And people have either missed it, opposed it, used it. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 27 onwards. And this is where we're going to particularly focus this morning. See, this is a hinge for the gospel, for this gospel of Mark. The pace changes here. Mark is this gospel that's just like boom, 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 one thing after another. In fact, the word immediately is used virtually three times every chapter so far. Immediately this happens, then immediately something else happens. Jesus is moving and Mark wants to portray the kingdom's just coming, it's just coming, it's coming. And then we hit this passage, 827 onwards, and and it becomes more of a deliberate journey. We're taken at a bit slower pace. That immediate word isn't used as much. The phrase on the way is used several times from here on in. We're on this journey now with Jesus. And it starts then in verses 27 to 30, it says this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What do we see here? Well, the king of this kingdom is confessed. He's the one the Jews have been waiting for. He was the Messiah. He is their promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And Peter here makes a statement of faith. Who do people say I am? Peter, what do you think? You are the Messiah. He tells Jesus what he believes. And in Matthew 16, Matthew's version of this account Jesus says to Peter, you're right, and Peter, on this rock, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, whatever that phrase means, and I think it's got different aspects to it, it certainly means that the church as a whole is built on the confession of faith of individual men and women. The church is built on our confession of faith, our understanding of who Jesus is. So let me ask you, I don't know everyone in this room, have you confessed Jesus? Have you confessed who he is? Have you acknowledged he is the Messiah? He's the one you've been waiting for. He's Lord, he's Saviour. Now a deeper understanding than that is needed as we'll see. We need to go on a journey with him as we'll see. 
And as I've just mentioned, but it starts with that confession of faith. Lord, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you died on a cross for me. Somehow in it, my sins are forgiven. And we confess him, we receive him as Lord and Saviour. Well, what happens with Peter is this. Jesus immediately takes him on that journey. He confesses him. Peter, at this point, goes to the top of the class. You are the Messiah, he says. Absolutely right. Well done, Peter. Pinnacle, well done. Then it goes on to say this. Jesus then takes Peter on a journey. Verses 31 to 33. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. This Messiah, the one the Jews were waiting for, this one who was going to come and rule, the King. What? He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. You remember he's been speaking in parables, kind of hidden stuff. But now he speaks plainly about this. And Peter took him aside. Have you ever taken God aside? Lord, I need to have a word with you. Um, yeah, not, not really happy about this. Not sure this is what's meant to be happening. I want to, there's, this is a word for someone here this morning. I feel this in my spirit. For someone here this morning, your issue is the sovereignty of God. God has been sovereign in your life. Let me tell you, he's been sovereign in all our lives. You've struggled with it. And maybe you've fought him on it. Don't fight. Don't take him aside. Receive that he is sovereign and receive that he is only good. Anyway, unlike us, Peter takes Jesus aside. And begins to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Look at what he says. Get behind me. He's talking to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a fellow Christian turning around to you? I mean, we say it in jest, don't we? How must that have hit Peter? Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're not going to get it right. You're just not going to fully understand me all the time. You've got to go with the flow of this, mate. You've got to receive who I am. Well, Peter wasn't alone in getting this wrong like this. This idea, he's got to stop Jesus. He's, he, Jesus. he's just acknowledged Jesus is the Messiah. And then he says, but he's going to be killed and suffered and rejected and die. The king is going to be killed. Well, Peter's not alone in rejecting that. The Targum, which is um, a vernacular translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. So particularly into Aramaic, the language of the time. So by the time of Jesus, not many people spoke Hebrew, understood Hebrew. So it had been translated into other languages. And one of those, um, for Isaiah 53, this chapter where it portrays the suffering servant, you know it? You know, who was dis- uh, like a man despised and all of that sort of stuff. In, the, in that version, it has the positive statements there as referring to the Messiah. The ones about he will see the travail of his soul and the fruits of his labours and all of that sort of stuff. The positive ones, they were happy to say, well, that's the Messiah. The negative statements, they understood as the people. 
So whereas we see it as about Jesus, the Jews of that time, they separated them because they just couldn't handle a Messiah who would have to suffer and be despised and be rejected. They just couldn't handle it. But Jesus says the kings are going to be killed. David Garland, a commentator on the book of Mark, says this about the disciples. Lofty visions of majesty filled up their eyes and the noise of then cheering crowds plugs up their hearing so that Jesus' teach, so that Jesus's teaching about suffering and death flies, sorry, I've typed this up really badly, flies in one ear and out the other. It is all a muddle to them. This teaching about this Messiah that's going to suffer and die is all a muddle to them. Somebody else says this, another commentator says this, Jesus is the expected Messiah in a most unexpected manner. We just don't get this because we're not, First century Jews who saw the Messiah as the king, the powerful one. And Jesus' kingdom comes in a completely different way. Humble, contrite, suffering, vulnerable. What's the lesson in this? Well, we need to follow Jesus on his own terms. You see, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem... And so are we. That's how we're to live the Christian life. And we have to go on. We have to go beyond merely believing in Jesus. You remember Peter confessed Jesus. He believed in Jesus and we have to believe on him. We start at the cross. We start at our confession of who he is, his death on the cross. But then we need to walk with him a life of discipleship where we don't just believe in him. There are plenty of people who who you'll talk to who say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. But are they believing on him? Are they walking with him day by day? Are we doing that? Are we crying out for faith for the journey? Someone said, a disciple must do more than get Jesus' title right. We have to do more than just name him as Messiah, name him as Lord. We have to walk with him in faith. And so we come to verses 34 to 38, which Jeff very helpfully sung about earlier. It says this, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Interesting that, what that says is everyone's welcome. It's not just disciples, he calls the crowd. And said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so finally, there's a call to carry a cross. There's a call for us as followers to take up our cross and follow him. Discipleship is cruciform. That word means cross-shaped or cross-marked. The cross must always be at the centre of our faith. It's not about church. It's not about, you know, happy celebrations, although I think that's in there. Fundamentally, at the heart of our faith, 
is the cross. So we need to understand the cross. And the call is to deny our very self. Again, David Garland says, discipleship is not part-time volunteer work that one does as extracurricular activity. Let me ask you why you're here. Is this activity this morning something we kind of do, you know, you're here this morning because actually I had time this Sunday. It's not, not too busy a weekend, I, I can make it this Sunday. Or is it something we might do regularly, but kind of, you know, really our life revolves around our will. And we just find coming to church is kind of helpful to us somehow. Maybe it's a spiritual experience. I've talked with people that have come in here and sometimes they've just felt a a warm feeling, perhaps the love of God. They've been touched. Sometimes, Sometimes they've been tearful. Is our Christian faith, our lifestyle, is it an addendum to busy lives? Or is it the absolute priority of our lives at the core of our being? Have you truly been converted? Where Christ and his cross is right at the core of your being. You understand, do we understand, brothers, sisters, that that Jesus and following him is what everything is about? We give everything for that. We've just sung it. You've just sung it, so I presume you meant it. You've just sung, oh, to Jesus, I surrender. We're going to sing in a minute. I'm giving you my life. Well, are we? Because that's the shape of discipleship. It's cruciform. And Jesus tells us we're to deny ourselves. We're to take up our cross and follow him. That challenge to take up your cross that he gave to followers at this time, that would have come across very abrasive. You see, the cross, again, for first century Jews, they'd seen, particularly men, I'm guessing, crucified. It wasn't a Jewish idiom. It's not like we say, oh, we've all got our cross to bear. It's more like saying, if I said to you now, to follow Jesus, you've got to walk to the gallows. You've got to sit in the electric chair. What? It means we die to self. It means he's everything. It means he's Lord. It means we lay it all down for him. We, let, we, let, we release our grip on the things of this world. We're busy. Sorry. Carry on, Isabel. I know you have calls sometimes. And I think, I think these accounts of martyrdom then in Burkina are on this line, aren't they? It may challenge us. It may make us feel uncomfortable. I think they're an affront to the cosy, superficial Christianity we have in the West all too often. They unsettle us in that, don't they? We're just a nice church. Don't talk to us about people having to die for their faith. We've got a nice youth work here. We've got lovely children. And This is the discipleship Jesus is talking about. Now, thank God we may not have to die for, us, for our faith. You notice I said may there, by the way. Pray God that we don't have to. But we do have to die daily. Martyrs have only, I think, martyrs have only ever been people who have been dying their whole life long. One of my Christian heroes is Jim Elliot. When I read, you know, Shadow of the Almighty, Through Gates of Splendor, I understand this man didn't die on that beach in South America, in Ecuador, 
killed by these alka. He died every day up until that point and yielded to Christ. It's that dying daily that enables you, I think, to walk through a martyr's death. How do we know if we'll be equal to the task in that day if, if we were ever called to lay down our lives like that? Well, how are we living day by day? Who's in charge? Come on, really, brother, sister, who's in charge? We know, don't we? Who's in charge? I am challenging myself here, by the way. And so in these verses, we have a choice. Do you notice the choices Jesus puts? Are you going to save your life or lose it? Using the language of commerce. commerce. Are we going to gain the world but forfeit our soul? Are we going to be ashamed of Jesus such that when he comes, he's not going to own us in the same way? I think, I think we'll still be saved. But are our deeds going to glorify him? And so in conclusion, I've got a nice picture of some ambassadors there. Well, an ambassador has authority to represent their kingdom. And they're expected to do it well, aren't they? I particularly think that guy on the right there looks really chuffed to be in that nice bright suit. But we've been learning of a wonderful kingdom that ultimately brings transformation and blessings. The culture of heaven come to earth in Jesus. Well, in 2 Corinthians 5.20 and Ephesians 6.20, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the gospel. You and I have been given authority to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. In fact, we're expected to do it well. And I don't know whether you remember, but a few weeks back, I started, just got onto a bit of a roll with the fact that we have superpowers to bring transformation. And on reflection, I think there's something to it. You see, like Clark Kent, who is Superman... We're a bit inauspicious going about our daily life, aren't we? we? We go under the radar. You know, Paul said, not many noble. We're a bit like that, aren't we? Not many noble here in Beck, are there? In fact, there's not any. So we're inauspicious. We have vested in us the authority and power of the kingdom of heaven. And Christ expects us to be ambassadors for the kingdom here on earth. He expects us to represent the kingdom of heaven, heaven itself on earth. So let me say to you this morning, you, and I mean this, I don't just mean this in the American use of this word, I mean this literally, you are awesome. Because you have vested in you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you this morning, you have the power of the kingdom of heaven vested in you by the Holy Spirit to bring transformation to the situations around you. Now, you may not do that by ripping off your shirt, revealing your red cape and underpants over your trousers. That may not be how it happens. In fact, don't do that. But at some point, you need to rip off grave clothes, dead thinking, negative thinking, and come to earth 
and land and walk about as an awesome being, releasing the power of God into those situations around you through your praying, through your laying on hands to pray for the sick. How many times have we done that lately? Let me ask you, brother, sister, how many times have you know, do you know people who are sick? Have you offered to pray for them? And I don't just mean take it away and pray for them. I mean lay hands on them. Because Mark tells us at the end of the gospel, you will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. Do I hear an amen in the house of God this morning? But here's the thing. Before we think I'm getting you know, a bit triumphalist here, let me just put some riders on that. You'll be pleased to know the power isn't yours because you can't do a thing like that. We can't see situations transformed. So just, just release now any burden that it's of you. When the elders pray for the sick here, let me tell you, there is not one elder going, let me at them because I know I can heal them here. But then neither do you need to get like that. But the Holy Spirit's in us. The Holy Spirit, the power of God is in us to pray for people, to see things change, to pray for situations, to speak words of life and encouragement into people's lives. So the power isn't ours. But what happens is this. Jesus said in Luke 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So what happens is this, he's looking to see whether we will step out in faith in these situations. Whether we will go from being inauspicious to auspicious as we bring the kingdom of God to these situations. And if we will do this in small ways, just stepping out in faith, saying a word, calling someone, witnessing to the gospel, praying for someone. Well, if we'll do that in small ways, he'll give us bigger assignments. There'll be more coming your way. You'll go, I like that. I like that about that person. I'm going to put them in this situation now. And I'm going to act on their behalf as they step out in faith. And as we do this, God sees it's not our agenda. We're not using him. We're not using his kingdom. He is pleased to entrust us as ambassadors with kingdom power and authority. And I truly believe if we will raise the temperature, if the water level, if we will allow the water level of faith to rise in this place, heaven will be established on earth. Amen.